chapter 10. And I'll invite you to turn with me there if you like. There are certain things in, uh, in the scripture that uh, are landmark events. What I mean by that, I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not. But what I mean by that is certain events that the Bible refers to uh, the Holy Ghost inspired the writers of the scripture to refer to again and again and again. Learning times, learning points, learning events. And Paul is going to use one of those here in his uh, letter and his address to the Corinthians. So let's just start in verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now he's writing to Gentiles, but he's writing about something that happened in the history of the Jews. So if the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those that went before us, are fathers to the Gentiles in Corinth, and they're fathers to us too. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. And did all eat and drink the same, did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Notice it's not by God that brings the destruction. It's the destroyer. It's the work of Satan. Now all these things happen to them for in samples. That's the same word that's used in verse um, 6 as examples. Now all of these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now he's speaking of several things several different times. First thing he makes mention of is the baptism unto Moses um, in the Red Sea. You remember the story how that God brought Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt through great signs and wonders, a great display of his power. You remember how that after the, after the last of the plagues, which was the death of the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt, Pharaoh finally said, go and we don't want to see you again. Get out of here. So the Jews anywhere between two and seven million people, depending on whose estimates you want to accept, then began leaving Egypt. But then Pharaoh, because of his own grief and the grief of the people around him, changed his mind and determined to go kill the whole lot of the Hebrews, the Jews that he had just released. They were boxed in. They had mountains on two sides 
the, uh, the armies of Egypt in front of them and behind them the Red Sea. And the people were naturally concerned. They saw this as a place of imminent death. But Moses cried out to God and God said, divide the waters. It's, uh, we won't turn back there and look at it, but it's kind of funny if you don't understand God or the way he works. But when the people cried out to Moses, Moses said, don't worry, God will take care of us. Then he turns around to God and says, God, take care of us. And God says, what are you looking to me for? Now that just blows my mind. If I'm Moses, my first thought is, where am I supposed to be looking? What do you mean, what am I crying out to you for? But God was showing that Moses was the one that had authority to accomplish his, God's will. Because he chose him and put him in position. So God says, what are you crying out to me for? Lift your rod, which is a sign of my power upon you and with you. Lift your rod over the Red Sea and divide the waters. So he did. Israel goes over on dry ground. The pillar of fire appears to keep the armies of Egypt away from them until they can escape. They get to the other side. The pillar of fire lifts. Pharaoh's armies come charging in to follow them. But it wasn't dry ground for them. They got bogged down in the sea, the midst of the sea, and then the waters came back together and drowned them. So he's talking about that event as being a place where Gentile believers, New Covenant, Gentile New Testament, Gentile believers, just like you and me, he's saying we should remember these things and learn about God. He goes on to talk about the 23,000 that died when Moses came down from the top of Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. You remember how that while he was gone, while Moses was gone, they had convinced Aaron to create a golden calf that they could worship him. And they did. It's talked about here as an example for us not to make their same mistake. It talks about the time when they murmured against Moses and the fiery serpents came in and killed a mass of people, thousands of people. And it's telling us, it says to us again, twice in these few verses, it says these are examples for us. Well, we need to learn from the examples. Now I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to read a lot of scripture in this chapter. Maybe may read the whole thing. We'll see. But the things that Moses has referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, apart from the Red Sea experience and the making of the golden calf, the other events, the other times he's speaking of and refers to were after the 10 spies came back with an evil report and they failed to take the promised land. So here's Moses in his farewell address, knowing that he's not going to enter into the promised land with Israel, but Joshua would take them through. This is his admonition, his parting speech, his farewell speech to the nation of Israel. 
beginning in verse 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, into all his land. And to what he did unto the army of Egypt, under their horses and under their chariots, how that he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord had destroyed them unto this day, and what he did unto you in the wilderness when you came into this place, and what he did unto Dathan and Eberim, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how that the earth opened their mouth, her mouth, and swallowed them up, and their households, and their tents, and all the substance that was with them that was then their possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Now you remember, I'll interrupt our reading for the sake of clarification on a couple of points. You remember how that in Numbers chapter 13, and we'll look there, uh, look at a verse or two over there in a minute. But how in the, the account of Numbers chapter 13, how the t- 10 spies, 12 spies went into the land to spy out the land. And the 10 came back and brought an evil report, the scripture says. And was in, they were instrumental in the people of Israel, the children of Israel, not going over into the promised land, but rejecting God's plan. Everybody in that, uh, from that day forward died from age 20 and up. So who he's talking to here 40 years later in Deuteronomy chapter 11 is everybody that was younger than 20 years old at the time that these things happened and Israel failed to take the promised land or go into it to take the promised land. And notice how Moses says, you know because you saw. He says, I'm not writing to your children. I'm not writing or speaking to the children that hadn't been born, that were born during the 40 years of the wilderness experience. Because they don't know. But you know. Now, folks, there's something about that. Um, Well, I don't know any other way to say it except like this. There's something about that that really sticks in my heart, grabs my heart about what Moses is indicating by the Holy Ghost, how that we as parents should pass things on to our kids. It's amazing to me how so many people are looking for Christian schools and churches to put the spiritual foundation in their kids to keep them In the place of God's blessing. It's not the church's job to teach your kids. It's not Christian school's job to teach your kids. They're your kids. Now I know you have. At least most of you have. I I would think almost all all of you would have. At least that's what I expect to be true. I think we all feel the same way about our kids. But let me tell you something. It's rare for children to have a greater desire for the things of God than their parents do. 
That's rare. History shows that it's usually a diminishing effect from generation to generation. If you want your kids to have the same relationship you've got with God or a better one than you have with the Lord, you're going to have to work every day, all day to make sure they know what your relationship with God is about. I'm not sure a lot of people do that anymore. We all see and and know the decline, the spiritual decline that takes place. We see it happening in our country. We see it happening in our churches. There's more and more, and I, I expect this to continue all the way to the end, at least in some circles. But more and more, there's a casual attitude toward the things of God that didn't used to exist. There is, in the world, this idea that we shouldn't push Christianity onto anybody. That we should be tolerant and respect other people's freedom and liberty and whatever. So that we don't push God on anybody and offend them. Well, how in the world does it make sense for that to get into our houses? Now, I'm not a pushy person about anything spiritual. I've been in, in and around people for the last 30-something years of my life. And if they don't ask me, I don't volunteer that I'm a pastor, a minister, or even a Christian. My method of life is if somebody can't see it on me, then they're not going to believe them when I tell it. You just never know, do you? (laughs) Folks, we can't let that attitude into our homes. We just can't. I've, uh, I've made this, used this example before. But it's true. I have totally evangelized my kids to the New York Yankees. I've been a Yankees fan since I was a kid. In third grade, I read a, a book that talked about some of the, the heroes of the New York Yankees organization many generations ago. And since I didn't live in a place where we had our own sports team, own baseball team to root for, Atlanta was the closest place to where I lived that had a team. I just chose the Yankees. Well, my kids like the Yankees. I don't know if there is enthusiastic about it as I am. But they'll tell you they like the Yankees. And honest to goodness, I never tried to make them like them. I never did anything to try to make that happen. But I realized that kids know who we really are. 
They know what's really important to us. They know spiritually about spiritual things. They know if we're just going through the motions or if it's really us. If we can evangelize our kids to sports teams without really trying, and you just have to take my word on that, I don't really care whether they like them or not. I don't even promote the idea that everybody should like them. I just do. Well, if our kids pick up things like that, what else are our kids going to pick up? Our kids are going to know whether our relationship with God is genuine. And they're going to know what value we place on it. Back to Moses' address. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 7. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. For the land whether thou goest to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, whether you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs. It's talking about the irrigation systems that they had. Apparently there were these things, that, kind of like treadmills, that would pump the water from the Nile River to wherever they needed to go. But the land, whether you go to possess it, is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, and lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Folks, if we don't teach our kids what we believe, they won't believe it. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now think about that phrase, as the days of heaven upon the earth. We've uh, talked a lot in the last couple of years about the kingdom of God. How that Jesus had his disciples, when they asked him how to pray, to teach them to pray, Jesus gave them what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. It really should be the disciples' prayer. And there are a lot of things about the Lord's Prayer that don't fit New Testament prayer. The principles are there. But Jesus was teaching them how to pray during a specific period of time during his earthly ministry, his three years of ministry here on the earth. And things changed after that when Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. But one of the principles that Jesus taught his disciples 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The definition, Jesus gives us the definition of the kingdom of God. And that is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And that's the message that Jesus sent his disciples out to preach. He didn't tell them to preach that he was the Messiah. He didn't tell them to preach about him. Now I'm sure he was part of what they talked about. How could he not be after they witnessed the miracles and the signs and the wonders? And I'm sure that a lot of people only listened to the disciples after they found out that they were with him. Because they had heard all the miracles too. But the message he gave them to preach was that the kingdom of God was near. That kingdom, that time, that condition whereby the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And nobody really has uh, significant questions about heaven. Part of that may be because we don't know too much about heaven other than what the Bible tells us. But nobody questions what God's will is in heaven. Everybody accepts that there's no sickness or disease in heaven. That's partly why it's heaven. But God created the earth to operate in the same way that heaven operates. God created the earth to be a mirror image of heaven. And here in the scripture is telling us, telling the Jews, even those who would take the promised land, who would take possession of the promised land, unlike their fathers, the previous generation, but that would take possession of the promised land, God is saying by the Holy Ghost through Moses, God wants your days here on the earth to be like heaven. That's his will. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And he's equipped us to make that to be a reality. And that's what God wants us to know. Let me read it again. Verse 21. That your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to cleave unto him. Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours from the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said unto you. Now some people want to say, yeah, but that was God's promise to Israel. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Well, then why in the world does, Moses, does uh, the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write to the Corinthians? The most sinful bunch of any of the churches that he started. Moses writes to the Corinthians, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians saying that the things that happened in the Old Testament are examples for us. He doesn't say the things in the, that are written in the Old Testament were just for the Jews, but he tells the first generation church that the history of the Jews is an example for us to understand God, his purpose, his plan, his will, and so forth. 
And the example that he uses is the taking of the promised land. At least one of the examples he uses is the taking of the promised land. Now, let me remind you of a couple of things, too. Where it says, where we start reading over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about how all our fathers, their fathers, our fathers, were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. Coming out of Egypt and and, uh, passing through the Red Sea on dry land is a type of salvation. Egypt is the type of the world, the sinful world, and passing through the Red Sea, an impossible feat that God did simply, is a type of, is an example of being saved. Well, a lot of people look at the promised land as the example of when we get to heaven. But it couldn't be an example of that because there were still giants to fight. There were cities to take, walled cities. There were enemies in the promised land. There won't be any enemies in heaven. So the promised land cannot be a type or an example of heaven. Well, then what's an example of? It's an example of everything that belongs to us because of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. Just like crossing over the Red Sea or passing through the Red Sea, I should say, was an example of salvation. Passing over, literally passing through the Jordan River on dry land, which is what Joshua leads the children of Israel through. That's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The promised land, the land of fruit and uh, milk and honey, with all the tremendous fruit that even the ten spies brought back with them. Those are types of the blessings that belong to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. David said it like this in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He talks about the Lord's benefits. It says, forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, what benefits does he mention? He says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Well, that's part of salvation, isn't it? But then he goes further. He doesn't say the benefit and talk about forgiveness of sins. He says the benefits, plural. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. That's what the promised land is a type of too. Healing for the physical body. Who redeems thy life from destruction, David goes on to say. Well, he's talking about redemption in the context of deliverance. That's a part of what belongs to us. That's illustrated by the promised land. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercy. He gives us another one too. He says, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David said all those things were benefits of the work that the Messiah would do thousands of years after the time David saw it and said it. That's what the promised land is a type of. The promised land is a type of everything that belongs to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not a type of heaven. And God said to Israel, 
that they could have his, his benefits and his blessings as an example of the work, the work of the Messiah in the future. Now I want to turn to uh, Numbers chapter 13. We've spoken about this a little bit before. And this is going to help get to the, to the place that I really want to try to get to this morning. We won't read the whole thing, but you remember the story about how the 10 spies came in, uh, the 12 spies went into the promised land to spy out the land. They found fruit like they'd never seen before. They talk about the cluster of grapes that they had carried on the pole between two guys. That's a pretty big cluster of grapes, folks. They brought back pomegranates and other types of fruit that were obviously bigger, more, better, whatever, than anything they'd seen before to show the people. I'll pick up with the story in verse 27. Here's the ten spies' report back to Moses. And they told him and said, We came into the land whether thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, uh-oh, there's a problem. There's something they see as a problem. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. Obviously, they're talking about Jericho. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Now, folks, you can go back and look at uh, the things that Moses has told the children of Israel prior to this point in time on behalf of God. And you'll find out that God told them several times through Moses, several times about the land of Canaan, the promised land, having all these people living there. No way in the world it should have been a surprise to them. It's factual information that God shared with them even before they came out of Egypt that they would be going to the promised land where all these people were. Nobody's surprised about this in any way whatsoever. The Bible reads, if we don't read it carefully and look back at what happened before, the Bible reads some similar to a situation where they get inside the promised land and it's not barren territory. And they realize, wow, there are a lot of strong people with big walls around their cities here. Well, folks, if it hadn't been for that, the land wouldn't have been flowing with milk and honey. Somebody's been taking care of the crops. But they allow that information, which was given to them many times before. And they come up with a problem with that. But Caleb, verse 30, Caleb stills the people before Moses and says, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him, the ten, with the evil report, said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, please notice that. Everybody in this story gets what they say. Everybody. Everybody in this story gets exactly the words that came out of their mouths. We won't look at it, but Numbers chapter 14, after the people turn around and uh, decide not to go in to the promised land, God tells Moses, let them know. Tell the people that I will do unto them as they have spoken in my ears. By that time, they'd already said, why didn't we die in the wilderness? And they did. Everybody in this story gets what they said. 
But the twelve, the ten came back and they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up, eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in are, are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. Now, folks, I want you to understand what God calls evil. The evil report, Hebrews, uh, Paul talking to the, the, writing to the Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews, calls it an evil heart of unbelief. He said, be careful lest you have the same evil heart of unbelief, which is description of this, that the Jews had when they came to Kadesh Barnea. But here's what that means. The children of Israel detoured God's plan for them for 40 years because they thought and spoke wrong about their enemies. See, for them, everything was forfeit. Everything God said was forfeit because of the strength of their enemies. Well, sometime after, 40 years after, they come to Kadesh Barnea and neglect to go into the promised land. 40 years later, we come back to Deuteronomy where Moses is telling the children of Israel about how they're going to have to go in and possess the land. They're going to have to take it from their enemies. In other words, they're going to have to go in to possess it. They possess it by walking on the land. Wherever the sole of your foot shall tread, that shall be yours. Well, how is that an example to us? Well, the Bible says numerous times in the New Testament that we walk by faith, not by sight. So whereas they put their physical foot on the land that they would have, the land that you're going to take or the benefits and the blessings of God that are made available to us by Jesus are going to be taken, only going to be taken by you walking by faith to possess them. They were walking physically to take the land. We have to walk by faith, believe in our heart and say with our mouths to take possession of what Jesus did for us. So if we're going to take possession of the benefits that David talked about in Psalm 103, who forgiveth thine iniquities, you're going to have to do that by faith. You have to believe in your heart and say with your mouth in order to take advantage of, take possession of the forgiveness that the blood of Jesus provides. If you're going to take advantage of the benefit that David said, who healeth all thy diseases, you're going to have to do that by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Believing your heart according to what the word says and speak it no matter what the circumstances look like. If you're going to be redeemed, if your life's going to be redeemed and crowned with loving kindness and tender mercy, then that deliverance is only going to come by believing in your heart what the Bible says about the work of Jesus and speaking it. If your youth is going to be renewed by the eagle, like the eagles, then it's going to be even as it says, who satisfies your mouth. You're going to have to talk renewed youth. Folks, this stuff just, just, just doesn't happen for you. You have to take possession of it. Now, the, the whole idea of taking possession means there's going to be a fight. And there is. There certainly is. I'm going to fast forward to Joshua chapter 2. 
Now we're 40 years later than than, uh, Numbers chapter 13 that we just read. The next generation comes to the edge of the promised land. Joshua sends two spies this time. It's easier to get two people in agreement than 12. So he sends two people in to spy out the land. First city they come to is Jericho. It's the one with the walls around it that, that uh, the, ten, the 12 spies saw 40 years earlier. Still got the same walls. They come to a place and they're found out by some of the leaders, the elders of the city of Jericho. They are found out that they've come. And so they send out people to find them. They wind up in the house of one Rahab a harlot whose house was either on top of the wall or right next to the wall of the city. And she hides them. She lies to the people that came to find them and looking for them. Um, well, where do I want to start here? I just want to get to one main thing. Let's see. Let's start, um, let's start on verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And before they were laid down, she came up to them upon the roof. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, When you came up out of Egypt and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Now she's talking about the people in the city of Jericho. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and in earth beneath. Now contrast Numbers chapter 13 the evil report of unbelief that they came up saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And there we saw the children of the Amorites and Jebusites and Anak and all the others, the giants in the land. What they said about their enemies was not true according to Rahab who was in the city of Jericho. What she's saying, those verses that we just read, what she's saying is that the things that we heard about you 40 years ago still make us know that this land is yours. She's saying, we know that you're going to take our land from us because of what God did for you 40 years earlier. If that's what she thought after 40 years, what in the world did they think when it was fresh in their minds? The very ones that the ten spies said were giants. She says, we've been afraid of you for 40 years. Do you see how foolish the report of the ten spies was? They thought things that were not true about themselves and about their enemies. So what happens? Joshua leads the children of Israel to the Jordan River. As soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark, which they were out front, 
As soon as those priests touch the edge of the water, the water backs up for some 25 miles. Where it talks about that it backed up too. If you go look at a map, an ancient map of that territory, it backed up for 25 miles. And the children of, and the people in the city of Jericho, it happens right next to their city in plain sight. So now not only are they coming across on dry land, they can't even see the river anymore. Let me show you what happened as a result of that. Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 it says, And it came to pass when the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted, because there was, and neither was there any spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. These are the big bad people in the walls, behind the walls. Folks, if I have one message to give you this morning, it's very simply this. God is bigger than your enemies. There is never a reason for you to ascribe any power, any ability to any enemy of yours in any way whatsoever. Impossible means nothing to God. Incurable is commonplace for God's power. You remember in Romans chapter 4, one of the things it says about Abraham, one of the characteristics of the strong faith of Abraham, he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now remember, this is the stuff that Paul tells the Corinthians. Remember what God did to Israel. Remember the example that he set. Well, you know the story. Israel goes over on dry ground. They cross over the Jordan River on dry ground in full view of the city of Jericho, in full view of the people, the sentries on the walls. They take 40,000 people, 40,000 men to act as soldiers for Israel's sake or on Israel's behalf. And they start walking around the walls of Jericho. They walked one time for six days, and they were commanded of, jo of uh, Joshua. Nobody's allowed to say a word. Now, folks, that doesn't mean you're not allowed to speak while we're walking around the walls. It means you're not allowed to speak for a week. Now, why was that? If you go back and look, you'll find that that's not what God told Joshua to do. You'll find that God did not demand that the children of Israel not speak. But Joshua was smart enough to see 40 years of his life wasted because people said the wrong things. So now that he's in charge, he says, you cannot speak. No speak for you. <laughs> not just when they're on the treks around the walls, but around the campfire. No, don't you know that there are people that are looking at each other thinking, did you see the size of those walls? There may be, have even been people at the, at the campfire making eyes at each other trying to communicate. <laughs> but 
but they couldn't say a word. What does that tell you? Well, you know the end of the story. The seventh day, they walked around seven times, and they shouted at the direction of Joshua. They shouted, and the walls fell down. What does that tell us? These are examples for us. What does it show us an example of? It means simply this. It means no matter what thought was in their mind, no matter what doubt they were tempted to think on, no matter what the devil was doing in their heads, they were governed by what they said, not what they thought. See, the devil wants you to think that because you're doubting God in your mind, that keeps the promise of God from becoming real. And he's lying. God never said, I will only deal with you in goodness or in kindness or in mercy if you think right. But instead he said, I will deal with you according to what you say. That makes your speech, the words that you speak, of utmost importance. Utmost importance. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If, literally since, God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who's going to bring an accusation against you when God's already said you're cleared? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Folks, intercession is usually thought of to be prayer. But that's not what the word intercession means. Now there is an intercession you can enter into through prayer if the Holy Ghost gives it to you. But intercession means to join two parties. For example, if I know somebody that you don't know and I introduce you to them, I have interceded between you and the person you wanted to get to meet. So when the Bible says Jesus is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, and I know this is a popular thing for people to preach, I get that. But if Jesus is having to pray at the right hand of the Father, then there's no reason for him to be sitting down. The work's not done. If the blood of Jesus, if the resurrection of Jesus was not sufficient to bring you into the place where you are a joint heir with Christ, but instead he has to sit there and pray full time, then the blood of Jesus isn't what it says, isn't what the Bible says it is. The fact is, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and his presence because of the shedding of his blood, because of his resurrection, his presence is an eternal reminder, an eternal evidence or proof that you are a joint heir with him. So when it says he's sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for us, that can't mean he's praying. If he's praying, then there's work not yet finished. But he's the proof of who you are. You have proof eternal proof 
sitting at the right hand of God, that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So let me read this verse again. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather than is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We now understand what that means. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Did you know those were whose? Look at it again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I want you to notice that Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to attach personality to problems. And some of the words he uses, the first word tribulation, it literally means pressure. It's not the same word that's translated tribulation in other places that means test trial or problems, test trials or adversities. This one means pressure. So if we look at Israel as being our example, we can clearly see that the devil tries to attach pressure to you based on the things that you see with your physical eye. Well, Paul's already made the, the case a couple of verses before. If God gave us Jesus, what won't he give us? How shall he not also freely with him, with Jesus, the gift that was made to us, offered to us, how shall he not with him also give us freely all things? That's simply saying he gave us the best that he had. And it's an all-inclusive gift. So whatever good thing you might need, God will not, cannot withhold from you because it's part of the promised land blessing. So he says, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Now you realize he's making a facetious argument here. He's just throwing us some examples saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the promised land blessings. Nothing can separate us from receiving the move of the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives to set forth and make a reality in your life and in mine everything that Jesus purchased and paid for. It's impossible to find something that can take it away from you. Well, then why doesn't everybody walk in those blessings? Because they refuse to take them by faith. They refuse to possess them. Israel possessed them physically by putting their feet on the ground that they were taking we possess things through the force of faith, the spiritual force of faith, because that's how we walk. What does that mean? That means walking by faith means speaking according to what God said about what you see instead of the way what you see makes you feel. It's all about the words of your mouth. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What about pressure? Well, what kind of pressure are we talking about? Well, financial difficulty and lack is pressure, isn't it? You ever been in a real financial bind? If you haven't found somebody, find somebody that has, they'll tell you what pressure is. Does sickness in the body, sickness and disease cause pressure? Well, if you don't know that, find somebody that has it. Find somebody that's being attacked. There's a lot of pressure on that. What other kind of pressure? 
Well, there's pressure from our jobs. There's pressure from people that don't like us on our jobs. There's pressure in the home. Pressure from parents, pressure from kids. There's pressure everywhere in the world. And none of that, all of that, is insufficient to keep us from having what Jesus paid for if you're willing to take hold of it and possess it. See, you and I have a promised land to possess just like Israel did. There are some things you're going to have to walk the walls around for seven, seven years, seven days, seven weeks, whatever it is. There are things you're going to have to stand in faith for for a long period of time. Now, not everything is like that, but some things apparently are. And the longer it goes, the more pressure the devil applies to you, telling you, well, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now, wouldn't it? So who's going to separate you from the promised land blessings? Who's going to detour you, deter you? from the benefits of the Lord. You're the only one that can. You're the one that makes the decision whether you'll have them or not. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? The word distress is another word for pressure. Persecution is persecution, but it's pressure because of someone coming against you. So literally this reads, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall pressure or pressure or pressure or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Paul seems to understand that there's pressure in this life. And he says not one bit of it is enough to separate you from what God has provided. Now you can be like the children of Israel that came to Kadesh Barnea and say, we can't do it. You can say, incurable diseases are too much, too big for God. My doctor said so. Doctor said this was incurable. Well, I'm sure the doctor's trying to do the best job that he can, but maybe he doesn't know everything about what's available. Maybe he doesn't know that you've got a promise from God that you can take hold of. Now, Paul writes to people that are under persecution. He writes to a church that's being heavily persecuted. So when he talks about the pressure of persecution, he's talking about the decision that some people are going to make that will mean the difference between life and death. I believe that's why he puts in peril and sword at the end. Some of our biggest problems is whether or not we're going to make our bills, be able to pay our bills by the first of the month. I'm not sure, but that might be a little different than being threatened with your life because you're a Christian. But either way, you've got a promise from God. Either way, you've got a benefit that you can take possession of, if you will. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, here's the answer. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things. See, it seems like in verse 36, Paul is saying, well, even the Bible says, we're going to die. But then he stops and he says, no. 
In all these things, we're more than conquerors. In all these things. Not in a few of these things. Not in one of these things. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded. Now, Paul's going to tell us about himself. I believe this is a good example for all of us to follow. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Two of those things are referred to as part of the devil's kingdom, principalities and powers. I believe it's illustrating to us that he's saying nothing the devil can do. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? Back to verse 31 he said if God's for us since God's for us who can be against us? Who is great enough to stand against the power of God's word? Who has enough power to them to withstand God's words being spoken from you? God's words in your mouth. Who's big enough to overcome that? Remember Jesus said upon the knowledge that he is the Christ, the Messiah, for us the risen Savior. He said upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell and all the pressure associated with the gates of hell here on the earth, the operation of hell and sin here on the earth, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation, as I've mentioned before, one translation says, the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. Folks, the simple reality is this. If you won't give up, the devil can't stand. If you won't give up, there is no enemy that comes against you real or perceived, they can hold out against the power of God's word in your mouth. You decide. Israel decided that they wouldn't go into the promised land. The next generation took it. Same cities, same walls, same giants, same circumstances. They did it, and for the most part, never fired a shot. They never lost a man until there was sin in the camp. The armies of Israel were not only undefeated, they weren't even scratched until the children of Israel started sinning. That's an example for us. You can come out without even the smell of smoke if you'll speak God's word and refuse to give up. God's bigger than your enemies. I hope you know that. Everybody should. God is bigger than your enemies. There's nothing the devil has done. There's nothing the devil is doing. There's nothing the devil ever can do that can defeat the born again child of God speaking his word. That's the example that's fulfilled in what Jesus did for us where God told Israel, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That's true for you and me. No man, no thing, no... Again, here's why I think the personality is attached to things. 
No power, no personality, no force of the devil can withstand the word of God coming out of your mouth. It's impossible. Oh, if believers would just hold out to see for themselves and not be moved by what they feel. I think back many times to what I imagine the campfires around the city of Jericho looked like when the children of Israel are going back to Gilgal at their, the place where they set up camp. I'm sure that there were thoughts that were running rampant through these people's minds, but they were not allowed to say a word. And because they did not, could not, were forbidden not to speak against what Joshua had told them. The power of God worked in such a supernatural and spectacular manner that everybody knew God's on these people's side. We should live our life in such a way that people only hear what the word says coming out of our mouths and then they conclude those people can't be stopped. God's always for them because he is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you are for us. Thank you that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Thank you, Father, that no man, physically or spiritually, no being, no creature, can withstand us because you're on our side. So we choose to take possession of the benefits, the promised land benefits of forgiveness of sin, physical healing for our bodies, provision for our lives, deliverance, even being crowned with loving kindness and tender mercy. We even take possession, Father, of the renewal of our youth and our strength by saying we are in Christ healing is ours provision is ours youth and strength is ours we bless you Father and we thank you that there's nothing too hard for you nothing incurable and impossible are words that just don't apply to us because we speak your word we bless you Lord with all of our soul and we forget not your benefits hallelujah hallelujah So we declare victory is ours, Father, because your word says this is the victory that overcomes the world and all the evil forces in it, even our faith. Victory is ours by the blood of Jesus and in his precious name.
Victory is ours. Satan, we serve notice on you. God's bigger than you and everything you can do. So we choose to hold fast. Knowing that through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Therefore, we refuse to give up today, tomorrow, ever. In Jesus' precious name. Let's say that together. Say this after me. I refuse to give up in Jesus' name. I believe God's word is working in me and always will. So I refuse to give up. And I say that my victory will be seen by all. And all will know that God is on my side. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Come back and be with us tonight for healing school if you can at 6. If not, have a great holiday. And remember what it's about. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.